And so let's pray, okay? Then we'll begin our time in the Word. Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you for a chance to spend time in your Word. Lord, you're so good to us. And while uh, sometimes it's, it's hard for us to get here during the middle of the week because of traffic, of work, of schedules, uh, we just pray, Lord, that you just give us wisdom. And pray that, Lord, for those of us who are here, that you'd instruct us and teach us in the way that we should go, that we might truly honor and glorify your name. We pray this in the name of our soon-coming King, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, last three verses of this wonderful book. Three chapters, and it's been so enriching to understand what Paul is saying. So in chapter 1, it was all about consolation amidst adversity. These people have been persecuted. They've gone through difficult times. And so Paul begins by consoling them because they had gone through so much adversity. And that consolation then allows them to receive the kind of comfort they need through the praise that he gives them, the promise he gives them, and the prayer he offers on behalf of them. You come to chapter 2, and it's not about consolation. It's all about a, um, um, uh, an understanding, a correction centered around prophecy because they'd been given a letter. that was They were told it was from the Apostle Paul, but it wasn't. And so they had thought they were in the day of the Lord. And so Paul was going to correct all that by helping them understand the characteristics surrounding the day of the Lord. And he chooses primarily from the book of Daniel to help them understand the rise of Antichrist and how it is they couldn't have been in the day of the Lord because these things hadn't happened yet. And then you come to chapter 3. And in chapter 3, there's a clarification about their responsibility. You have a consolation amidst their adversity. You have a correction around prophecy, chapter 2. And then in chapter 3, you have a clarification around their responsibility. He talks about personally their responsibility, then corporately their responsibility as they deal with the lazy person, the unruly person. And now, finally, he comes to the very end of this book. And this is what he says, verse 16. Now may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. And this is a distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Now, as I went through this, I thought for sure I could divide this up into four sermons, just three verses, because there's so much here. He, first of all, begins with a petition. He moves from a petition to a provision, from a provision to a precaution, and from a precaution to a proclamation in, four, in three verses. The petition centers around the peace of God. The provision centers around the presence of God. And then the precaution centers around the truth of God. And then the proclamation centers around the grace of God. See that? Those are our four points for this evening. That's where we're going to go. 
But it all begins with a petition. And the petition is all about the peace of God. I love what he says. It is so rich, so pure, so true, so great. Now may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. What a statement. What a way to end, right? He begins with grace and peace in chapter 1, verse number 1. Now he's going to end with grace and peace in the last three, three verses. But the Lord of peace himself grant you continually his peace. You know, so many times we go through life without peace. We think that, that peace is a tranquility of life. That somehow if I'm, if I'm, in the, I'm on the beach uh, sipping my virgin pina colada and, and everything is fine and the wind's kind of blowing in my face and I have no, no debt, I have no financial issues, my, my wife loves me, my kids are obedient to me, that, that that's the greatest of all, of all peace. But that peace is dependent upon circumstances. The peace that God offers is not dependent upon circumstances. The peace that God offers is dependent upon himself. And the word is irene, which is a, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an opportunity for two opposing forces to come together and be reconciled. And that's what happens when you have peace with God. You have us who are at enmity with God, coming together with him, being bound together with him, joined together with him, so there's complete and total recon reconciliation. So that, listen, so that I'm able to understand who he is and what he's done. Our Lord never became anxious, never worried, never was stressed, never was confused. Can you imagine being with our Lord and never anxious? I love what it says over in, in Mark's gospel. It's, it's one of my favorite narratives in all the scriptures. Because when we go to Israel, uh, we get on a boat, go out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, and I open up to Mark chapter 4 because it explains to us why we, why we are there. And to be able to sit there on a boat on the sea and explain what took place some 2,000 years ago on the very location that we are at, the Sea of Galilee, explain to people what took place. Because it's very important. You know the story. It says in, in Mark 4, verse number 35, on that day when evening came, he said to them, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they, they took him along with him in the boat just as he was, and other boats were with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. Jesus himself was in the stern asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, hush, be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, why are you such cowards? Do you still have no faith? They became very much afraid and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him. Why were they afraid? Because there was a greater force that came upon them. You see, here is Jesus 
He is sound asleep. There's somebody's phone going off again. That's all right. Take it. Take that. If it's for me, tell him I'll call him back. But the fact of the matter is, here's Jesus on this cushion, sound asleep. And the, the apostles, Lord, don't you care that we're perishing? But he calls them cowards. What, are you a coward if you're afraid you're going to die? Are you a coward if you're afraid of, of, of a storm that's going to take your life? You are if you don't believe what Jesus said. He said, let us get in the boat and go to the other side of the lake. But when they got in the middle of the sea, they were afraid because they didn't believe what Jesus said, that they would go to the other side of the lake. They thought they wouldn't make it. So they were afraid. So Jesus says to them, after he says, hush, be still, and the sea becomes like glass. Remember, these are fishermen, right? These guys know the sea. They understand the pitfalls of the sea. They get that. But they were so afraid because of the storm. And yet, and yet, Jesus calms it and says, why is it you men of all people have no faith? Why don't you believe what I tell you? How long will you be with me and not believe what I have said? You see, our Lord was not stressed about the storm because he was perfectly calm. That's why the Lord said in John 14, 27, my peace I give unto you, not as the world gives, give I unto you, but my peace I give unto you. In other words, whatever the world has to offer, it cannot replicate God's peace. Okay? Somebody said once that peace in the world is that wonderful time where everybody stops to reload. That's peace in the world. Because the peace that God offers is not dependent upon circumstances. Remember Colossians 3, verse number 15? It says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. It's a word that means to umpire. Let the, let the peace of Christ be the umpire in your hearts. In other words, let the fact that you're at peace with God be the governing decision in everything you do and everything you say. In other words, there's something about being at peace with God that you have a divine partnership with him. And with the divine partnership comes a divine presence because he is in you, right? The peace of God is in you because he is the Lord of peace. And so with that divine partnership, because you're joined together with him, you've been reconciled together with him, you have a divine partnership with the God who controls everything. There's nothing he doesn't control. He, he always makes the right call. I, you know, I coached baseball, college baseball for 10 years. And I was always arguing with umpires because they always made the wrong call. And I knew what the right call was. They needed to listen to what the right call was because I knew the right call. And so I would always argue with umpires. The Lord never makes the wrong call. It's always the right call, right? He is the one who, know, who controls all the events and makes all the right calls and all the right decisions in every situation. So the Bible says, let the peace of Christ umpire your hearts. Make the decision in your heart. What's happening is that Christ himself is ruling there because of his peace. You have this divine partnership. 
you have this divine presence. And with that divine presence comes a divine protection because that's what the peace of God does. And the unique thing about the peace of God is that it's a triune peace. We know that the Father is the Father of peace. We know the Son is the Lord of peace. And we know the Holy Spirit gives peace. In fact, you could say it this way. God the Father is the one who specifically, specifically provides peace. Jesus, the Son, is the one who purchased peace. And the Holy Spirit is the one who produces peace. You can say it this way. The Lord of the universe, the Father of all creation, is the one who determines peace. The Son is the one who died for peace, and the Spirit is the one who dispenses peace. Did you get that? We know that the Holy Spirit, right? The fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, and peace. The Spirit of God dispenses peace. And we know that from John 14, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all dwell within us because it's three persons in one, the triune nature of the living God. And so the Spirit of God is called the Spirit of Peace, but our Lord is called the Prince of Peace, Isaiah 9, verse number 6, right? And we also know from the book of Ephesians, the second chapter, that he is the one who is our peace. So Christ is our peace because he died that we might have peace, that we might be reconciled to God. And when you have two opposing forces that are joined together, what you have is harmony. You have peace. And now, because our Lord is the umpire and controls everything, I can be at peace because I know that whatever happens around me, God's in charge of that. That's what gives me peace. If I don't have the peace of God in my heart, guess what? I am frazzled. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just like overwhelmed. What is happening to me? What is happening to my family? What is happening to my church? What's going on? Lord, what happened? But if you have the peace of God in your heart, you can sit back and say, Lord, Lord, you're in charge of this. You've got complete control of the people, of the problems in the situation. I don't need to be anxious about it. I don't need to worry about it. Why? Because God is completely in charge of it. It's that inner contentment that allows me to rest in the fact that I am partnered with the divine God of the universe. And therefore, I experience his presence, which allows me to experience his protection no matter what happens to me. So our Lord says to the men, did you not understand that we are partnered together? This is Mark 4. Don't you guys understand that because we're partnered together and my presence is with you, I'm in control of this? Don't you understand that I'm going to be your protector, your provider? I'm going to be your peace giver? Don't you get that? Why is it you, of all men, don't understand this? You should be men of great faith. You should believe that I said, let us go to the other side. I will protect you to get there. I promise you to get there. And my peace will allow you in the midst of a storm to relax because you're going to get there. That's why I said, you're cowards. Because you do not have the faith to believe. And what is faith? It's believing in what God has already said. 
And God already said, let us get in the boat and go to the other side of the lake. What a beautiful picture. And so here is Paul saying, may the Lord of peace continually grant you peace in every circumstance. (laughs) Can you imagine that? What a great way to end the epistle. What a great way to end on a promise to this church that was a model church to begin with. First Thessalonians tells us that. This was the, probably the, the greatest church in Scripture. When you look at all the churches put together, there was one church that stuck out evangelistically, spiritually. This church was that church, the church of Thessalonica. And now he's going to conclude by saying, you know what? I want the Lord of peace to be able to grant you his peace continually in every circumstance. I love it. Continually. Why? Because, you know, that peace can be interrupted, can't it? It's interrupted because of my own sin. It's interrupted because of my own selfishness. It's interrupted because of my own unwillingness to trust. Look at the man in the boat, Mark 4, right? They were unwilling to trust. They were unwilling to listen. They were unwilling to sit back and do what God said and obey his promises. Instead, they were so concerned about their own physical lives that they were afraid they were going to perish. And yet the Lord was in complete control of that. And so so we realize that our own sin can interrupt this whole thing. And so we can go to our Lord and trust him. Like the psalmist, remember Psalm uh, 46, I believe it is. With a psalm, I'm sorry, Psalm 40, 42. Why are you in despair, O my soul? What a great question. And why have you become disturbed within me? Have you ever asked yourself that that question? Go to bed at night. Soul, why are you so disturbed? Why are you so shaken? What is wrong with my soul? He says, hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. Verse 11, why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him. The help of my countenance and my God. Verse 5, why are you in despair, O my soul? And why are you disturbed? This is chapter 43, by the way. And why are you disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him. The help of my countenance and my God. Listen, starting next week, uh, Bruce McLean, our missionary residence, is going to take us through 12 weeks of the Psalms. And you're going to learn how to pray the Psalms. You're going to learn how to praise God according to the Psalms. Everything about your life as it pertains to the Psalms is going to change. His father, Art McLean, was one of the first elders of our church. He's gone home to be with the Lord. He was instrumental in writing our doctrinal statement. And yet he had done his own uh, commentary on the Psalms. And so whenever he preached in church or, or taught one of his ABFs, he taught on the Psalms. Because he, he bathed himself in the Psalms. Well, he taught his son, Bruce, those psalms, gave him his notes. And Bruce has made it a life of studying the psalms. And so for the next 12 weeks, Bruce is going to take us through different psalms. And he's going to preach twice on Sunday mornings in in August and give us Psalm 139 in great detail. And so we're going to learn about how to pray the psalms and how to praise God amidst everything that happens because of what the psalms say. Your life is going to change based on the psalms. And the psalmist says, why are you in despair, O my soul? Why is my soul disturbed within me? Ah, hope in God. Trust in him because he will lift your countenance. God does these things. So when you get to a place 
where, where you don't experience God's peace in your life because of your own sin, because of your own anxiety, because of your own struggles, and you begin to take things under control and think that you can manage them yourself. And whenever we do that, we, we, get, we just mess everything up, do we not? We, we want to take things in, in control. We, we want to rule our own lives. Let the peace of God is to rule in our hearts. But we want to rule our own lives because we really think we can do a better job than God can. We really do which basically is a form of idolatry because we set ourselves up above God because we think we're better than he is. But in all reality, God just wants us to trust him, believe in him, and follow his word. That's it. It's not rocket science. Christianity is not rocket science. It's simply obey what the Lord says. Follow him. That's all it is. And when you do, ah, the blessings abound. So here is Paul saying, oh, you know, may the... Now listen, this is his benediction. This is his desire. His ultimate desire for the church of Thessalonica is that the Lord of peace grant you his peace. In other words, peace is a gift. Peace is a gift. We know that grace is a gift, right? We know that repentance is a gift. We know faith is a gift. The Bible is very clear about those things. Everything pertaining to salvation is a gift from God. There's nothing that we do to earn peace, earn faith, earn grace. Grace is God's unmerited favor toward us who are not deserving of anything. So God grants us gifts. And so we have this great gift of peace. And, God's, and, and, and Paul says, listen, I, I, I want you continually to understand that God grants you peace in every circumstance, in every situation, no matter what it is. In other words, there is no circumstance, no situation, no matter how bad you might think it is, where God's peace does not affect you in that situation. None. In fact, God has designed every situation for you specifically so that he can grant you his peace in that moment. He wants you to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly and the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let the fact that you are partnered with him and he is present with you make all your decisions. And therefore, as Paul says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all human comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus our Lord. Your, your heart and mind will be protected. And boy, we need our minds protected, right? Because we take all this stuff in from the world, all these conversations, all this news uh, that comes, all this social media, and it affects everything that we're thinking and everything that we're seeing, and yet we want, our minds need to be protected. And so unless we commit everything to the Lord in prayer, we're going to become anxious, and we're going to begin to worry, and we're going to begin to wonder. And God says, you know what? You're partnered with me. I live within you. My presence is there. I want you to trust me. I want you to believe in me. I want you to follow me. I want you to understand. I want you to experience my peace. You know, the Bible says in the book of Isaiah, twice there is no peace for the wicked. There is no peace for the wicked. Remember at the birth of Christ, when the angel said, glory to God in the highest, peace 
on earth toward those with whom he is pleased. The peace that God offers is only available to those with whom he's pleased. So who's that? Psalm 147, verse number 11. God is only pleased with those who fear him. That's it. So in other words, and, and, and the theme of the Christmas story is what? Fear. Mary was afraid. Zacharias was afraid. Elizabeth was afraid. Joseph was afraid. Everybody was afraid. The shepherds, they were afraid. So you keep hearing, fear not, fear not, fear not. Why? Because everybody's afraid. But you don't have to fear. Why? Because God is here. God has come. The promise is fulfilled. And so there's peace that comes to those who fear him. Only those who fear him. Those are the ones with whom God is pleased. Because there is no fear of God in the eyes of the unbeliever. They don't fear God. So therefore, they'll never have the peace that God offers because there is no peace for the wicked. So Paul says, you understand this. I want the Lord of peace to continually grant you his peace in every circumstance. What a beautiful statement. What a beautiful benediction. What a way to be able to close out a letter. I want you to understand this, Paul says. This is the beauty of all that Christ is and all that he wants to do in every situation, in every circumstance. So it begins, the benediction begins with a petition. And the petition is all about the peace of God. And then he moves to a provision. And the provision is all about the presence and power of God. Look what he says. He says very simply this little phrase, the Lord be with you all. And isn't the Lord with us anyway? Isn't the Lord omnipresent anyway? Of course he is. He's everywhere. There's not a place he's not. So why would he say, the Lord be with you all? Because he wants them to understand the provision of God's presence and power. If the Lord is with you and you recognize that, you're going to be able to experience his power. Remember way back in the book of Exodus? Oh, I love this. Moses was conversing with the Lord God of Israel. And Moses said to the Lord in Exodus 33, verse number 12, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you yourself have not let me know whom you will send with me. Moreover, you have said, I have known you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, I pray you, if I have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways that I may know you, so I may find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence shall go with you, and I will give you rest. Then he said to him, Moses said to the Lord, if your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. Lord, we're not going anywhere unless your presence goes with us. Now watch this. For how then can it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not by your going with us so that we, I, and your people may be distinguished from all the other people who are upon the face of the earth. What is it that distinguishes you and me from everybody else on the face of the earth? The presence of Almighty God. 
<laughs> He's with us. Paul wants them to recognize the presence of God in their lives because with that presence comes his power to enact all that he wants us to do for his glory. This is the distinguishing mark of the believer, the presence of Almighty God. Moses made it very clear, Lord, the way everybody's going to know that you, that, that me, that this people are distinguished from everybody else in the promised land is because of your presence. You're with us. That's just a great thing to understand. Don't you know that we are a distinguished people? We are a priestly people. We are a chosen people. We are a holy nation. Why? Because of the presence of God in our lives. God has distinguishedly set us apart by his work and reigns and dwells within us. We are uniquely distinct, distinct from everybody else on this planet. Every Christian is. Simply because of the presence of God. Lord, Lord, may the Lord be with you continually. Psalm 46, the psalmist says these words. Psalm 46, verse number one. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. God is our refuge and God is our strength because he is present with us in trouble. You see, that is the power of God at work. That's why the psalmist said in Psalm 23, verse number four, yea, though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Why? Thou art with me. What is there to fear? Thou art with me. To the men in the boat in Mark 4, why are you afraid? I'm with you. Don't you understand that? If the Lord is the good shepherd and the Lord is with it, why are you afraid of the circumstances surrounding you? When I am right here with you. Well, now he indwells us. He's always with us. That's why when, when Mary grabbed a hold of him at, at, the, at the resurrection, there by the, by the garden tomb, Mary, don't cling to me. Don't cling to me, Mary. The relationship's now different. I, I must ascend to my father. Why? Because if I ascend to my father, I send the, the Holy Spirit. I send another comforter. And if, if I don't go to the father, I can't be in you or in anybody else. And that's what is unique about the Christian experience, the church age, Christ in you, the hope of glory, right? That was the mystery concealed in the old, revealed now in the new. My friends, Christ is in us. The Lord is with us. The Lord provides for us. The Lord protects us because his peace is within us. What a beautiful beautiful understanding of what God is doing. Now, you know, we need the presence of God in order to resist Satan. Did you know that? Look what it says over in the book of Ephesians, the sixth chapter. Ephesians chapter six, it says these words, verse number 10, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. We, our strength is in the Lord and in the power of his might. 
So because of his presence, we are able to resist Satan. Without him, we can't. We succumb to every temptation down the pike. But the believer has the presence of God in him to resist Satan. How about this? To rescue us in temptation. We said this verse a couple of weeks ago over in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. You know this well. 1 Corinthians 10 verse number 13. Paul says these words. He says, No temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with that temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. In other words, because of God's presence, he opens the escape hatch. So you can see it. And so you can follow it. Remember Matthew 6, verse number 13? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, right? That's the request. It says, the Lord says, when you pray, pray this way. And he gives everything about God and his glory. Then he goes to man and his needs. And he, you know, forgive us, Lord, and, 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 and give us our daily bread. But he says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Or deliver us from the evil one, right? The answer to Matthew 6, 13 is 1 Corinthians 10, 13. God provides the answer in Scripture. So when the temptation comes, there's a way of escape. But the way of escape is only open through the presence of God who is actually in us to show us the way. So the presence of God helps us understand how to resist Satan, how to be rescued amidst temptation. How about this? The presence of God helps us reach the world with the gospel. We're to go into all the world, we're to make disciples, teaching them to observe all that I, that's been commanded, right? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Why? And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You see, as you go, is literally what it says, as you're going, the assumption is you're already going to be going. Because you're a disciple, You've got to make disciples. So as you go, in other words, as you are on your way making disciples, the assumption is you're going to reproduce yourself. When you get married, the assumption is what? You're going to reproduce yourself, right? You're going to have kids. Procreation is a result of marriage. So when you get married, you're going to have kids. That's natural physical reproduction. <laughs> when you get saved... There's a natural reproduction as well. It's called spiritual reproduction. You reproduce yourself spiritually. So in Matthew 28, it says, as you are going, because you're going to be going, because you're going to make disciples, and you're going to teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. And guess what? Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Why? Because God's presence enables us to reach the world with the gospel. God's presence rescues us from temptation. God's presence helps us resist Satan. God's presence does so many marvelous, wonderful things. I could go on and talk to you about how God's presence is that which causes us to remain steadfast and strong in the power of his might. That's 2 Timothy 4, verse number 18. 
God's presence, ready this, helps us remember his truth. Remember back in John chapter 14, when he talks about the Spirit of God coming? He says that the Spirit of God is going to come upon you. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. And then he says in verse number 25 of John 14, 14, these words, These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. (laughs) That is so good. Without the Spirit's presence, how do we remember what the truth of God is? But we can remember it because of the presence of God in our lives. What a beautiful truth. So Paul says, listen, I, I, just, I just want the Lord of peace to be with you all, to grant you his peace in every situation, every circumstance. That's all I want. On top of that, I just want the Lord to be with you. I want you to understand this petition. It's all about the peace of God. I want you to understand this provision. It's all around the presence of God because with his presence comes power, and protection. And then he says, this precaution. It's all about the truth of God. He says these words. Now I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, and this is a distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way I write. Paul is making sure they understand he's the author, right? Because the distinctive signature became his distinguishing mark in everything he did because Romans tells us that he dictated his letters. But there was a signature at the end. He wanted them to understand that this signature marks it out from the one you got earlier from somebody else who was a false teacher who led you away because Paul's concerned about one thing, what? Truth. And notice Paul never talks about his truth, my truth, her truth. He talks about God's truth. Because that's the only truth there is. There's no such thing as my truth. What is that? Well, this is my truth. As opposed to his truth? Are there two truths? What are you talking about? No, there's only one truth. It's God's truth. And Paul was consumed with the truth of Almighty God. I always get nervous when someone says, remember the whole Me Too movement? Well, it's her truth. Well, what does that mean? It's her truth. She could be lying, but it's her truth. She believes it so much, it's your truth. Whatever you believe is your truth. That's what the world says. That's not true. The only truth is God's truth. Everything else is a lie. So Paul's consumed with the truth. He's consumed with it. So he wants them to know that there's a distinguishing mark about the letters he writes because these are truthful letters. This is the inspired word of God. This is what God has commanded him to do and say. He's consumed with truth. He wants them to be consumed with that truth as well. And so, as God is a God of peace, as God is a God of faith, he's a God of truth. He wants them to understand this truth. That's why his words are true, 2 Samuel 7, 28. He is abundant in truth, Psalm 86, 15. Our Lord cannot lie, Numbers 23, 19. Jesus is the truth, the way, the truth, and the life. The Holy Spirit is true. In fact, he's called the spirit of truth. And in 1 John, the spirit is the truth. 
And so everything about the spirit, everything about the son, everything about the father is all about truth. And we hold in our hand the truth. And so therefore, he wants them to beware. There's a precaution. It's all around the truth of God. Make sure you understand the truth. Make sure you believe the truth. That's why the church is the pillar and foundation of the truth. We are upholding the truth. We are standing strong on the truth. That's what we do. When you come to church on Sunday, when you go to a study school class, when you go to a children's class, when you go to youth ministry, when you go to an elective, when you go to anything in our church, it's all about God's truth. It's all about the truth. Nothing else matters. My opinion is irrelevant. Who cares what I think? My wife doesn't even care what I think. My kids don't care what I think. My dog cares what I think, but my kids don't care what I think. They want to know, what does God say? Right? God doesn't think. God knows. What does God say about what he already knows? That's what's important. So we need to communicate truth. As the church, we are the pillar and foundation of the truth. That's why Paul in 2 Timothy says, Timothy, you got to protect the truth. you got to persevere in the truth. you got to preserve the truth. You've got to proclaim the truth. You've got to pass on the truth. Everything is about the truth. And when you do that, you're able to communicate the one thing that matters. So he moves from a petition to a provision to a precaution to a proclamation. And the proclamations around the grace of God. He concludes with these words. He says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. What a great way to end. We know that, that grace is a gift. We know that we can't be saved without the grace of God, right? That, that, that favor that he bestows upon us, not because we've earned it, not because we deserve it, because we don't. We deserve judgment. We deserve hell. God grants us his grace that we might have heaven. And so Paul says, may the grace of the Lord be with you all. Why? Because we know that grace saves us. But you know that grace also sanctifies us? We're sanctified by his grace. We know that we, we, we grow in his grace, right? Paul said in Acts 20, I commend you to God and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up. How are we built up? How are we strengthened? If God's grace saves us, God's grace will strengthen us. God's grace will sanctify us because his word is the word of grace. And so when we read the word, when we study the word, when we memorize the word, when we're under the word, when we're in the word, guess what? There's a sanctification process that's happening. There's this strengthening process that happens. You know, we need to be strong spiritually. And it only happens through a steady diet of the truth of God's word. There's no other way. There's no magic formula for Christianity. There's no magic way to grow spiritually. You, you got to be in the Word. You got to be under the Word, and you got to be on your knees. In the Word, under the Word, on your knees. That's it. If you do that every day, strength, sanctification, all going to take place. But it's only because of the grace of God. It's the Word of His grace. We don't deserve His Word, but He's given it to us enables us to, to honor him. Do you know that not only 
does the grace of God sanctify us and strengthen us because it saves us. The, the, the word of God or the grace of God is that which causes us to truly live sacrificially. I love what it says over in 2 Corinthians 8, verse number one. Paul says, now brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God. He wants them to understand what the grace of God is. So he says, which has been given to the churches of Macedonia. That in great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. Paul says, if I could teach you one thing about the grace of God, here it is, are you ready? Remember the churches of Macedonia? They, because they were poor, they wanted to give to the work of the ministry. So they gave liberally. They gave sacrificially because of the grace of God. Isn't that great? The grace of God causes you to give sacrificially. Give liberally. God's grace does that. That's why it's called grace giving. Because the grace of God is that what motivates us. Think about a church that's poor, doesn't have a lot, but begs to give, that wants to give. That when they give, they've never given enough because they've recognized the magnitude of God's grace in their lives. That was the illustration Paul wanted to use to those in Corinth about the magnitude of God's grace. It manifests itself in sacrifice. They were willing to give things away liberally out of their poverty. See? How great is that? See, we, we think that the, the grace of God is so great that, that, it, that if I just keep, keep collecting more and more money, I'll be able to have peace with God. And, and I'll have peace with God. I'll have peace in life. Because it all centers around the more things I accumulate, the more things I have, the more groceries in my, in my, in my refrigerator, the, 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 the more or better cars in, in my driveway, or, or, or the better decorations in my house, or the better way my kids are dressed, I'll, I'll finally... I'll be content, I'll be at peace with God. Not knowing that's the direct opposite of the way the grace of God works in your life. The grace of God actually causes you to want to give liberally. Not just to the church of God, but to people who are in need because we love them so. That's how Paul concludes. And I guess if I had a prayer for you and for me, that, that would be it. That somehow we would understand the peace of God, the presence of God, the truth of God, and the grace of God. Because our whole lives are centered around who? God. He's the God of peace. He's the God of strength. He's the God of truth. He's the God of grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for tonight. Lord, we've had a, a great journey through 2 Thessalonians. So many things maybe we could have said that we didn't say, but Lord, we said what needed to be said, and we heard what needed to be heard each and every week. And we thank you. And we know that our study really truly isn't over because we continue to study your word. We want you, Lord, to, to do unique things in our lives. 
We want you to, to grow us. I'm grateful for every person who's here. It's not easy to get here on Wednesday nights. There's ball games and school and traffic and work and so many extracurricular things that are going on that those who come really truly make a sacrifice to get here. And they come to put their kids in our kids' time that they might hear the word of the Lord, to bring their youth and put them in youth ministry, that they might grow in the word of the Lord. All that is so great. We thank you, Father, for what you've done. Our prayer is that, Lord, we would take what we've learned and understand that amidst adversity, there's consolation. In chapter 1, you told us. That, that amidst prophecy, there's always correction, and your word gives us that correction. And in the midst of our responsibility, there's always a clarification as to what we are to be doing and how we are to do it for the glory of your name. And our prayer is that that would be made manifest in all of our lives for the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is soon going to come again. And we pray that it would be today. In your name we pray. Amen.